This interview was such a groundbreaking, earth-shattering expose on the inner workings at the Honeywell Metropolis Uranium Hexafluoride Conversion Plant that we had to take it down a few years ago when we originally did the interview on May 8, 2019. Uh, since then, a class action lawsuit has been filed against the plant, and here within a few years of the lawsuit, we are putting this groundbreaking interview with nuclear whistleblower Michael Harris back up. It is November 17th, 2022. You're not going to want to miss this interview with Michael Harris, a nuclear whistleblower formerly working at the Honeywell Metropolis Uranium Hexafluoride Conversion Plant. And interestingly, this interview was done on our mom's birthday, May 8th. And since then, she has passed away. So, want to dedicate this interview to Michael and my mom, Carol Harris. Get up, get up, your voices are needed Become, become the pulse of the revolution In the ranks of the masses rising Get up, get up, your voices are needed Become, become the pulse of the revolution In the ranks of the masses rising Greetings everyone, this is Bobby Vaughn Jr. with A Call to Actions Today I'm here with a, another nuclear whistleblower But this is a kind of rare event as it's pretty rare that any brave individuals actually come out and talk about the only uranium conversion facility within the United States. I'll start with a brief d description on the history of this plant. After World War II, uranium production became the utmost importance within the U.S. military-industrial complex for the production of nuclear weapons. In the small town of Metropolis, Illinois, the Allied chemical plant opened its doors in 1958, and in 1962, it became the sole facility that converted raw uranium ore, also known as yellow cake, into uranium hexafluoride. Now, under the name Honeywell Metropolis Works, or Converdine, the plant continued operations until November 30, 2017, when it announced to idle the plant and lay off approximately 300 workers. Then, abruptly on May 16, 2018, the plant was punched with its first ever class action lawsuit. Plaintiffs claim that the plant knowingly contaminated the surrounding environment with uranium, thorium, and other radionuclides. Since then, very few whistleblowers have spoken up. Though today I have with me a man named Michael Harris, is one of those few that are brave enough to actually speak out. Thank you for being a brave voice of the people and being with me today. Uh, would you like to start with a description of your position at the plant? <clears throat> yes, I was a material handler at the plant, and my job consisted of bringing ore from a pad up to a place that they put blends together to make yellow cake and for them to convert it. Mm -hmm. And constantly 
my job was to be around this stuff. Um, there was a building that was called the Shredder Building, was highly contaminated. You could not enter without having a Tyvek suit, fresh air mask, and your ankles and hands duct taped. And it was extremely high levels of contamination. And day in and day out, we were in here opening these drums and running it through a machine and constantly putting this dust from these chemicals, dry chemicals, into the air. And there was no filtration unit or anything to avoid this stuff from being put out into the air or the atmosphere. There was numerous times that there was a building that was called the Rot Building where drums of materials was set down to rot for 90 days before it was low enough on contamination levels to be shipped out. To enter this building, you had to have a fresh air mask on. And while we were down there, we had to dress in full rubber suits, fresh air masks, acid proof gloves and boots over our existing work boots to what was called scrub drones. We used a highly concentrated toilet bowl cleaner that when you put on the drums would steam and put off an extremely toxic odor and we had to scrub these drums with this to be able to ship these drums out to get the contamination level down. <clears throat> and we would, once to twice a week, we would send out rail cars with contaminated materials to two different locations. One went to Utah, and I believe the other one went to New Mexico. And they had to be a certain amount, and also these had to be scanned by the uh, health physics department to be able to leave the facility. But I know numerous times we had blue hoppers, rollback hoppers, that was full of yellow cake, and we sprayed them out with blasters, and it all went down into a water drain system that went straight out to the river. And it was numerous times that these were so hot, there was no way they could leave. And I saw numerous times where outside contractors would come in, and they could never leave with their vehicles again because of just walking around on dirt surfaces and getting in their trucks. And the mud would get down in the rubber mats or whatever in the floorboard, and the trucks were so hot they couldn't leave the facility. Yeah, I wanted to and, talk about that, um, how you would hose down the pad. Um, or Of course, you know more about it than I do. But this, this outfall or this ditch, um, I believe it's um, outfall 2 or outfall 002, which collects on average – about 3.3 million gallons of water from the site every day that flows mm -hmm. that flows out this ditch or outfall and is 
disposed of directly into the Ohio River. Yes, there was uh, numerous times every morning we would have to go to our waste management and, and uh, scrub lights. And um, I would see people down in this area taking samples in uh, specimen cups and taking it back to the lab to test it. And then there was um, what you're talking about where they were spraying stuff off. There is a pad that has all the drums. There, They said there was over one time there was 56 million drums on this pad. And there was these black, solid black drums that were lined up there was thousands of them and there would be times we would go down and pull out whole rows and get halfway through to the middle and there was highly toxic lime yellowishy green cottage cheese looking substance oozing out of these drums all over the pad and we had to go in and clean this up so upon cleaning this up very hazardous very dangerous i've never in my life seen anything that looked like this and it was eating holes in the drums and to me my first dealings with this i said i didn't want to have anything to do with it but they said this is your job this is what you do so in order to feed my family and take care of my bills i had to subject myself to hazardous conditions on cleaning this yellow cake up that was eating through drums yeah, there's no telling, like, really what that mixture contained. Like, definitely uranium, but it sounds like there were some other uh, chemical compounds in there, too. I'd say definitely um, hydrofluoric acid. I know that's been yeah. that's been a big problem at, the, at some other plants is HF, which just by yeah. itself is bad. Then you mix it with uranium, it becomes pretty toxic. Would, when they would leak out or ooze out this material... Was it normal, or did you ever witness or have to like force forcefully partake in uh, spraying what was left over on the pads out to the outfall that would drain to the river? Yeah, <clears throat> most of the time, I mean, it, for some reason, it seemed to rain a lot out there. So this pad where all this stuff was held, a lot of the times the drums are underwater, you know. I mean, at least an eighth away, like first ring on the drum was underwater. And I mean, this stuff, like I said, was oozing out. And we would have to take pressure washers down there and we sprayed the pad off with that. And of course, it went right in the drain. Yeah. So, yeah, there was numerous, there was numerous times that this happened. And like I said, you know, I didn't, didn't think it was right. And I was like, where does this go? And they was like, oh, well, it goes back here to these ponds. We had rubber lined ponds that was full of um, ammonia and also some black tarish looking material i don't know exactly what it was but we had to suck these these ponds out on one occasion and the smell was so bad i mean if you breathe without a respirator on you would instantly start vomiting it was extremely um, very potent smelling, raw, rotten egg-ish. Yeah. There was a lot of sulfur smell. I mean, like I said, it was black. And if you ever got it on anything, I mean, it'd never come up. Mm. And then also, when I was talking about those drums that we had to clean to ship, yeah. 
there was there was a lot of times that like they were saying you know it rained a lot so these um, truck bays were backed up where the semi trailers were where we would take and load these drums after they were cleared by health physics there was two foot of water or so in the bottom of these places and they told us don't walk in there and i was like okay i don't want, i don't walk through any liquid i don't know what is but it was bad enough that when they get up to the gate they would call us material handlers up to the front and we had to scrub the wheels with acid mm-hmm. for the semis to be able to leave the plant wow and were these were these uh trucks were they just sitting on in mud or dirt or was it no these was con- these were con- concrete semi truck pads where they mm-hmm. would back up they would unhook yeah and they would leave them there and we would load them and then they would come back and rehook and then they would pull them out okay but it was like i was saying it's there would be two foot of water in there when it rained a lot and they said that that water was extremely dangerous yeah don't be walking it doesn't sound good at all i, I know that water is definitely not supposed to mix with uf6 because when it does it creates an acidic uh, gas form of it pretty much like a uranium contaminated hydrofluoric acid gas that when you breathe in you know as we as we know from the um 2014 leak i believe it was october 2014 where there was a uranium hexafluoride leak that you could easily see the plume <clears throat> hitting the atmosphere, and as soon as it hit the atmosphere, an automated sprinkler system came on and started dousing it with water. And there were reports of people miles away at the EEI plant getting sick just from the uh, just from breathing this stuff in miles away. Um, <clears throat> I only witnessed one time that. We had a hexafluoride leak, and there was a sprinkler system called a halo yeah. over the rail car. And as soon as that that leak started, I mean, the whistles all went off, and we all had to go to our safe zones, and we had to stay in there for a minimum of two hours. And um, as soon as that water hit that gas, it turned into yellow BBs, and it hit the ground. Good grief! And sometimes, they, sometimes they would clean it up, and sometimes they wouldn't. That doesn't sound very good. I would really not like to be outside when it's raining radioactive rain. Yeah. And that kind of sounds, that's what it sounds like. If, if you were on the plant site when they turned the sprinkler system on during a leak, it would literally start raining uranium rain. Yeah. That's that's kind of interesting yet and also, scary. Also, there was, it was Every Tuesday or every Wednesday, it's been a while to recollect exactly which day it was, but they had um, they had a water test, and these were like huge, like um, like you would say sprinkler systems, but they were on steel poles, and I, I bet they shot out at least a five inch mm-hmm. stream of water. And these covered all these places where all this caustic and dangerous materials were. So if there was a leak, they would just turn these on. And I mean, we we didn't never know if it was a drill or whatever. And then there was times after they would do this, they would make us 
witness and sign these these pads stating that uh, that they did a test on these things, and I had no idea what they were doing. But it was it was really odd that you would have a sprinkler system that only was in certain areas and not the whole plant. You know what I'm saying? That is interesting. I remember because you know I'm from the I'm from the city as well. You know, 26 years. Um, every Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month, there was a, a an alarm system, an alarm test across the entire city of Metropolis to test the alarms. Mm-hmm. They claimed that it was like d- a disaster alarm system, but the mm-hmm. o- the older I I got, the more I started to put the pieces together. Is that's like seriously an alarm system put in place? In case there's ever a really significant leak at the Honeywell plant. Yeah, they tested those every... T- it was the first or second Tuesday of every month they mm-hmm. did that out there. Yeah, of course, they used yeah. it for, like, tornadoes and stuff, you know, um, if we were yeah. ever, ever under a tornado uh, warning. But uh, I say definitely the most uh, disastrous thing that could happen would be uh, something involving the Honeywell plant um one thing that's interesting is most people don't don't know that the plant is actually a joint venture between two companies not just honeywell but it's honeywell international and another company that uh, is in the nuclear uh, field and also the drone field that company being general atomics so the, the Honeywell plant in Metropolis is actually Converdine. It's usually known as Honeywell or uh, Honeywell Metropolis Works, but it's actually Converdine. Did they ever tell you about that merger like between Honeywell and General Atomics at the plant? Nope. No? It's kind of interesting. No. Something to look into a little bit more. Um, one thing that I had discovered a couple of days ago is I was looking at um, a, a draft environmental assessment for the proposed renewal of Metrop- Honeywell Metropolis Works source material license, SUB 526, which um, the Honeywell facility is overseen by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And within this report that was published October 2018, It reports that that the Honeywell facility is sitting on top of an aquifer, <clears throat> an aquifer that is made up of Mississippian uh, cavernous rock material that is highly fractured. That's concerning to me when you have the sole and the largest uranium conversion facility on Earth, the sole one in the United States. Is sitting directly over an aquifer um, is quite suspect, especially when it's highly fractured. Uh, do you believe that there's any way that any contamination on site could have seeped into the ground or somehow made its way to this aquifer? Well, I mean, there was, you know, when I was talking about those ponds, there's the, yeah. the two rubber, the two rubber lined ones I was talking about, but there was also two more that was on the back side of the plant behind the shredder building that I was talking about, 
and the waste management plant, and that was right there by the ditch that we were talking about where it goes straight out into the river. Yep. And and these, the I don't know what was in them, but I've, it wasn't water or it was some kind of liquid, but it was really weird colored. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like a tealish, yellowy blue color. I don't know what it was, but it was right back there. And at one time they were lined, and then the last time I was out there, there weren't. I didn't see any lining, but I know all of this waste was stuck out in a trash area on the ground. So it was sitting on bare gravel and mud, mm-hmm. constantly leaking out. When they would do the the shutdowns, we would take all the stuff they cut out of that that building, and we would take it and put it on pallets and set it out on the ground. No concrete, so it was going straight on the earth. Yeah, and that's every time, and it it was full of green salt. It was full of yellow cake, mm-hmm. and when it rained, where do you think it went? It went straight in the ground. So yeah. there's no doubt in my mind it went straight down. Right, and, and um, I I do believe, and there's not a doubt, that when contaminating the Ohio River directly through the outfall, uh, the drainage ditch outfall too, that you're, you're also contaminating the aquifer because people know that rivers uh, feed aquifers. And vice versa. Yeah. Um, and this aquifer is used solely for Honeywell's municipal water source. There are there are three stations. Uh, one for uh, this, of course, the sprinkler system, um, the faucets. All water that's used on site is pulled from this aquifer. That we drink and wash our hands in every day. Correct. Yes. Um, so yeah. it's kind of cyclical um, cycle. You know, you contaminate it and then reuse it. And, of course, aquifers are pristine until they're contaminated. Uh, de- definitely something that needs to be looked into more, I think. Um, anyways, yeah, the uh, the aquifer is known as a as a highly fractured and cavernous Mississippian Salem limestone that uh, that underlies the Honeywell site at depths from 280 feet below the surface to 500 feet, which I would suspect is contaminated. Um, so, yeah, these um, the cylinder yards, I in my opinion aren't really overseen enough. Uh, of course, you know, the NRC can do walk-around inspections, but what about the cylinders that are on the very bottom and in the middle of these cylinder yards? Um, I would, again... The ones that were all rusted through and was just laying flat on the concrete? Yeah, yeah. And the ones... That- rain washing all in and out of them and stuff, and, of course, going uh-huh. straight down the drains. So those had pure uranium in them at one time. So I because that's what they they put them in those gray cylinders when they pressurize it and turn it into a gas and send it out. So yeah, there was there was a yard in the back by the waste management thing that we couldn't go in at all. We did not have clearance whatsoever to go in there. Really, they would never let us in. Yeah. Do you have any idea what was going on in there? 
No, but they were they were the big gray cylinders that kind of looked like long, stretched out footballs. You know, they were like fat in the middle and they tapered on both ends. Yeah. Which, you know, everybody's seen them on flatbed trucks coming in and out of there. Mm-hmm. You see them all over. But um, they sat on like, it looked like railroad ties that had been, you know, carved out for them to set on. But we was not allowed in that area whatsoever. Hmm. I have I had complete access to the whole plant except for that yard. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did you ever witness any spills? I witnessed or a cylinder drop. It wasn't a matter. It wasn't a matter if it was just when it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I noticed um, they were loading one one time, and a crane officer crane operator made a mistake and he let one fall and it kind of like one end kind of hit but it didn't leak or anything but I there were spills every day on like these drums that supposedly had ore in them um, the Russian drums were the most common ones that would drop because they're all handmade drums and they were like twice as thick and twice as heavy as all the rest of them mm-hmm and we had to pick them up with clickers when these forklifts and we had to bring them from three high down and it was once twice a week that they would fall and when they hit it would put out this black extremely fine material and then when it hit the ground it looked like it had gold flakes in it it was real shimmery gold colored mm-hmm that was mixed in with this black and it the smell was ungodly i can't even describe the smell but it was the same with the green salt i mean there was millions of drums of green salt on facility all the time and we had to stack it and move it all the time shipping it in and out and Hmm. there was um there was a company that used to come in and get pallets of extremely highly hazardous stuff. And we, it was like maybe once a month, they would ship it out on semis, enclosed trailers. And then when they would bring it back, we would have to take hacksaws um, and cut chunks of the floor out and, and bleach and use that real high cleaner that we used for the 90-day rot drums. Mm-hmm. In the holding building, mm-hmm. and we would have to try to bleach these trailers out once again. Had to be in full rubber suits, 107 degrees in these trailers, and in there with stuff that was so highly chlorinated that if you didn't have a mask on, it would probably knock you unconscious. It was so strong, mm. and as soon as you put it on the floor, it started steaming and smoking. And then if we, they would, the health physics would come out and monitor it. And if it was still hot, we had to cut it out mm-hmm. with hacksaws and hammers and sledgehammers. And mm-hmm. so there was a whole lot of cleanup nonstop all the time, trying to make stuff to where it could leave that plant. Mm-hmm. I saw numerous times people's shoes that they left in paper smocks or no shoes on or like rubber booties that you would put over your boots, like for visitors, because their clothes were so hot they couldn't monitor out. I saw this a lot. Wow. 
Oh. Or people would bring it into our locker rooms and it'd just be tracked all over the floors. And then our clothes that we'd wear home, as soon as we go to monitor out, couldn't leave because it would get on our, our shoes that we were taking home. Hmm. And sometimes I don't think there was any way that these monitors could have let us out, but huh, for some reason we did. Maybe maybe the alarm systems were being wired around or, or recalculated. I don't know. Maybe. But I mean I mean I know there was days when we was in extremely hot areas that we had to shower really good and we would have to leave fifteen minutes before everyone else to go shower to leave and sometimes had to wear double Tyvek suits and stuff and I mean it was really dangerous and there was one time we was in the shredder building and there was some material they wouldn't tell us what it was but they had us spread it out over the floor so that it could dry and it looks like iridescent fish scales i mean it was all kinds of weird yellowishy blue and purple and green colors and it kind of just like it looked like a fish scale you know it was yeah. so many different colors wow. and they would let it dry out on the floor and then we would have to take flat scrapers and scrape it off and put it back in drums and ship it out. But I was told one time that this stuff should have never been on facility. And I had no idea what it's called, but I just know that it was hush-hush. And people were very nervous that it was there. But once again, they subjected us to this, and it was either do it or you're fired. So That's kind of strange. Um, because the plant... Really, uh, is only supposed to be receiving uranium oxides like uh, U308 or you know uranium oxide to be converted. But uh, is there another part of the plant that people don't know about? Like it can receive shipments um, and hold those shipments to be shipped elsewhere. Have you have you heard about that? Um. Like I said, there was highly restricted areas that we couldn't go in. And, I mean, there was stuff coming and going all the time. And, I mean, there was this stuff that we weren't allowed to be around. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you know, they did do a lot of shipping and receiving. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know exactly what it was or, you know, I just I can tell you what I saw yeah. and what I was exposed to daily. A lot of Russian material. I, I know uh, Honeywell... Converdine's been in contracts or deals with Russia for a long time. It's kind of a hot topic these days, so I think it's important to bring that up in China. Yeah, we, we got a lot of uh, Russian drums shipped in weekly, and we had a lot of um, you know stuff from China, and I mean all over the world. There was stuff from South America. And they just told us that it was ore for, you know, process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was different blends for, you know, different kinds of ore that they were making, or, you know, stuff they were making. Yeah, um, you know, there are some, some images available online. If you just search uh, Wikipedia for uh, Converdine, you, you'll see images of the drums of the one of the cylinder yards. And if you zoom in, you'll see... Kazatom uh, Prom or uh, Kazakhstan, which used to be part of the USSR, um, which now 
even the, the Kazakhstan or Kazatomprom shipments are overseen by uh, Russia's atomic energy, uh, Rosatom. So, I mean, although these cylinders may not necessarily, may all of them say Russia, a lot of them are being overseen and Russia's getting a good cut of the deal from even stuff coming from Kazakhstan. You've probably seen those. Oh, yeah, I've seen a bunch of those. Yeah. Because it was written right on the drums. Yeah. 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 And it was like painted on with a stencil. Mm. Mm. Like a yeah. like an oil pastel. Well, the- oh, I mean, paint. I mean, they had stencils painted on there, you know, like you would make out of cardboard. Oh, yeah. And it would say, yep. there were some from there, then there were some from uh, different parts of Russia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those are the, those are the ones that were the most noticeable mm-hmm. of how they were because they were a light gray. Yeah, and then there were some Russian drums that were black, but the light gray ones were the one from Kazakhstan or whatever you said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were the light, and those were the most. Those were the most. Um, there was more of them than any that yeah. we had. Um, I'm just looking at a, an aerial photograph of, of the plant. And, you know, of course, they're, they're the gray cylinders. And I know the black ones, they, they, those are smaller, and they stack those up um, um, vertically. But uh, what about the, the red cylinders? You remember uh, seeing those? I love you, Mom. Happy birthday. Um, now, are you talking like the 55-gallon ones? Uh, they, they look, uh, yeah, they look like they're about 55 gallon. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was always a whole bunch of red drums down there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were like always, the red ones, there were some like faded yet red, and then there was a whole bunch of new red ones. Yeah, of course, the plant's in a in an idle stage right now, um, but I I know as a as a matter of fact that they haven't stopped receiving shipments. Um, no, they haven't. I, I I can't, of course, because I don't work there. I don't know exactly like why they're receiving shipments. Um, you know why they just last month re- re- received. Um, over 50,000 pounds of material are they still converting or like I'm wondering if they're just like a holding area um, to be shipped out to other places but they say they're running minimal operations they still have a few employees I wonder if they're they're still processing material, and if they are, because so many people are are laid off, they could easily be processing material that's out of specifications. Well, I've been told by people that used to work there that they're fixing to start back up. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, well, how is how is that even possible? Yeah, I I don't see that going through very well. Uh, especially well, with this lawsuit. Well, I was told by people that used to work there that was security, and they said that they 
called them back to go to work because they said they was going to start. Hmm. They might, they might start uh, decontamination and decommissioning. But uh, we will see. We will see. Um, yeah. So, thank you for your contributions. Again, here with the brave Michael Harris, one of the very few whistleblowers Metropolis that are willing to come out and tell the truth about what's happened at the United States-only uranium conversion facility and the planet's largest uranium conversion facility. A lot of good clues here, a lot of key points. And again, I thank you, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be talking very soon. Okay. All right. Again, this is Bobby Vaughn Jr. with the Call to Actions. Michael Harris. Take care. Truth, unity, and triumph. Uh